Welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. In this session, we're going to be looking at a special study on baptism and Romans 6. Paul begins Romans chapter 6 by mentioning baptism. He says in his discussion of our new identity in Christ, he simply says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too should walk in newness of life. And so Paul mentions baptism here in Romans chapter 6, and it provides a good opportunity for us just to pause and reflect on some of the things he says about baptism in this text. This is one of the central texts on baptism in the New Testament. And sadly, there seems to be an unfortunate amount of confusion about baptism in some parts of the Christian church. So let's jump in here. The first interesting thing about baptism in Romans 6 is, as noted in the commentary, that Paul just assumes his readers have been baptized. He assumes he can write to the Roman churches about uh, their new identity in Christ and bring up their baptism almost in passing because he just believes they've all been baptized, which is amazing in view of the fact that Paul hasn't been there. Paul didn't start this church. He didn't preach the gospel to them. In fact, Paul notes that no apostle has been there, and they need some apostolic foundation. That's one of the reasons he wants to visit the church at Rome, is to really lay an apostolic foundation for them. And yet, even though that's the case, he writes to them, telling them to think back on their baptism, assuming that they've all been baptized. Why can he do that? Well, the reason Paul can do that is because of what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Right before Jesus ascended back into heaven, Jesus' final words, that what we often call the Great Commission there in Matthew 28, Jesus told the church, here's your mission. Your mission, O church, is to go and make disciples. Well, how do you do that? Well, what Jesus said there is, make disciples, number one, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number two, teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. And so the mission of the church right from the get-go involved baptizing people. That's how you make a disciple. You baptize them into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what the early church did. When you read the book of Acts, at every turn, people got baptized, right? And so as people expressed their faith in Jesus, immediately they were baptized in the book of Acts. Um, and so because of that, because that's the way they carried out Jesus' instructions so fully and so faithfully, Paul can just assume that the disciples in Rome have been baptized. In fact, well-known scholar F.F. F. Bruce, in his commentary on Romans, commenting on this fact of Paul's assumption, says this, It is certain that Paul did not regard baptism as a, quote-unquote, optional extra in the Christian life. So that's the first interesting thing about baptism in Romans 6. The second thing is that Paul associates here spiritual renewal with baptism. Paul says baptism displays, embodies a death, a burial, and a resurrection to new life. This is spiritual renewal. This is what theologians refer to as regeneration, this 
becoming new again, death, burial, and being raised to new life. And Paul associates regeneration, spiritual renewal, with baptism here. Now, some popular preachers have found the fact that Paul does this troubling to them. So troubling that, in their mind, this can't be talking about water baptism. I mean, how could Paul associate spiritual renewal and a physical act like water baptism? So you get well-known radio preacher from a generation ago, Chuck Swindoll, writing in his book, Grace Awakening, saying that some baptisms in the New Testament are wet, some are dry. This one in Romans 6 is in the latter category. Why? Give me a reason. I don't understand. In fact, I dispute your first premise that some baptisms in the New Testament are wet and some are dry, right? Or you get uh, John MacArthur in his commentaries or even in the footnotes of his study Bible saying that, that this verse is not talking about water baptism. Why? Give me a reason. And so we see some popular preachers have found this troubling and just say it can't refer to water baptism. My question is, well, why not? Why can't a physical act be connected in some way to a spiritual reality? As a Jew, Paul just would have had no problem with that. Paul didn't have any sort of dualistic tendency as a good, faithful Jew. Matter was good. Material acts were good, right? It didn't matter, right? God, Paul grew up as a Jew with an Old Testament where there were all sorts of tangible, concrete rituals that were a key part of their spiritual experience. And because of that fact, most New Testament scholars recognize that there's no reason to think that Paul is referring to anything other than water baptism. For example, Doug Moo in his commentary, the NIV application commentary on Romans says, It seems to me, therefore, that we cannot escape the conclusion that Paul presents water baptism here as the means by which we are brought into relationship with Christ. In fact, Moo goes on to say that it, that baptism in the New Testament was clearly just one little piece of the conversion experience. It was part of a larger collection of things that included faith, repentance, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and, and baptism as sort of, that was the whole package. And as someone came into Christ, those things all kind of went together. In fact, well-known New Testament scholar Robert Stein essentially says the same thing. He says in the New Testament, conversion, that is becoming a Christian, involved five dimensions or aspects, all of which took place at the same time, that is, on the same day. The five dimensions are these, repentance, faith, confession, regeneration or receiving of the Holy Spirit, and baptism. To separate any of these in time does violence to the New Testament pattern. And so Paul here in Romans 6 and elsewhere, Galatians 3, Colossians 2, right? Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, the New Testament writers simply were very comfortable associating baptism and spiritual effects, spiritual benefit. Just, they seemed totally fine with that, and it makes perfect sense. Jesus said, go, make disciples, baptize them. This is just part of the process of making disciples. It's part of the experience of moving from outside of Christ into Christ. And so they, they saw no problem associating those things together. And so we shouldn't either. All right, the third interesting thing about baptism here in Romans 6 is that Paul thus uses their baptism to teach them why they shouldn't go on sinning. Really, that's the main point in Romans chapter 6. But Paul uses their baptism to teach them this. Here is Christians, and Paul is trying to make a point about why they shouldn't continue in sin now that grace has come and grace has abounded. And Paul says, your baptism can be instructive to you. 
And that should be instructive to us that we we can reflect on our baptism. We can learn from our baptism. We can uh, gain strength and encouragement from our baptism in a variety of ways, whether it's about the point Paul makes here in Romans chapter 6 or other points. In fact, Martin Luther was uh, once said that when you, when a Christian's tempted to doubt their salvation, what should they do? And Martin Luther says, remember your baptism. Not because baptism in and of itself saves you. Martin Luther didn't believe that. None of us believe that. But because baptism is a tangible, concrete, observable fact wherein God promises to meet you and promises the benefits of what Jesus achieved, right? And so it's like, if it's not it's not subjective. It's not just a feeling. It's not, I, I, I think. It's like, no, God says here in this moment, this is what's true about you. So live out what God has deemed true about you. And that's essentially what Paul does here in Romans chapter 6. He gets them to recall their baptism and then to think through the implications of what their baptism means. It means that they have died to sin and they've become alive to God. And thus, live that out, live out this new identity. And so their baptism becomes instructive to them. And so it's really unfortunate that over the course of the last few hundred years of church history, there has been tension and division revolving Christian baptism. Christian baptism is meant to be this powerful, instructive, meaningful moment that really marks our move from being in Adam to in Christ, from being dead in sin to being alive to God. It is this mark that is supposed to unite us together as one people of God in Christ. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, there is one baptism. It is part of our unity in Christ. There's only one Christian baptism, which is why I dispute like Chuck Swindoll's premise that some are wet and some are dry. That's two. There's only one. There's one baptism for Christians, and and that is this powerful, sacred moment in which uh, everything that God did for us in Jesus is displayed and demonstrated in such a powerful way. And, and so it should be something that we celebrate together as the people of God. This is who we are. We are marked out by our baptism as God's very own people, now free in Christ to live his kind of life. And that's the whole point Paul makes here in Romans chapter 6.